welcome to the Nerd Party. Maximum warp. Punch it. Punch it! Punch it, Bishop! Punch it. Punch that shit! Let's punch it. Hello, everybody at home, and welcome. This is Punch It! Writing in Star Trek, episode 74. I'm your co-host, Tristan Riddell, and with me, as always, is... Charlene Schmidt. Charlene, this week is special, because this is something that we have actually never done on Punch It! before, but we did it on a previous show that you and I hosted that was all about Star Trek Voyager. And one of our favorite things to do was a deep character analysis. That's right. Now, obviously, we were only uh, able to do a deep character analysis of people from Star Trek Voyager, but now that we have a show, a podcast that's devoted to everything Star Trek in the annals of everything that's been on screen, in movies, on TV, and video games, and comic books, whatever, wherever, today we're doing a character analysis on Miles Edward O'Brien. That's right. We're going to slip through all the cracks. We're going to... <laughs> deep dive into all the information that we have on the guy. And my favorite part is we're going to add our little punch it twist. And if we see room for what ifs, we're going to say, hmm, I wonder what happened between this and this just a little bit and see if there's story potential for the future. Absolutely. And that's what makes this a punch it episode. That's how we're putting our punch it spin on it, because this is punch it writing in Star Trek. So we're going to look at the writing that exists of how Miles O'Brien was written and also maybe add in some of our own speculation in between. So Miles Edward O'Brien, he is a human male born in 2328 in Ireland. So he is straight up Irish, not just somebody from Irish descent. He is Irish. And... We, we only know a little bit about his, you know, his earlier life and everything like that. He says that he uh, can trace back his ancestry to uh, to royalty, Irish royalty. <laughs> Naturally, he went on spaceancestry.com and did the thing. <laughs> and something that I that it may sound banal, but to a Star Trek fan, this is actually quite interesting. He was raised on real food. <laughs> Which just doesn't happen a whole lot in the 24th century because of replicators. And we think this is an amazing invention and we would all want one right now. I know I would. Take the convenience of having good nutritious food but without having to cook it and do the cleaning because the replicator mm -hmm. takes the empty bowls back and whatnot. Of course I would want to do it. But with all technology, there's always a little bit of backlash of a certain subset of people saying, you know, you know what? No, it's not the same we prefer it the old-fashioned way, and that's what the O'Briens did. They even handled raw meat. So, okay, I'm glad that you brought that up, because this happened in the Next Generation episode, The Wounded. Now, handling raw meat, in the 24th century, how does that work? Because are they still slaughtering animals? Right? Really? There's farms out there? You, you can get beef and chicken? Or, or is this synthetic, and it's the closest thing they have? That's the thing is that it begs the question. And again, like this is only an interesting question if you're a Star Trek fan. <laughs> of course. Where, because that's the thing is that we know a lot of people like have their own gardens and grow their own food. You know, Cisco did it. And Picard's family, of course, has the vineyards and everything like that. So we know that real food does exist. It's just rare. And we know that yeah. real gardens and farms and like that exist. But where is the line drawn when it comes to 
animals because right. of course there's the vegetarian movement there's the vegan movement there's everything in between and if we had replicators we wouldn't have to subjugate animals we wouldn't have to feed off of them right we wouldn't have to raise animals for food so that that brings up that big ethical question of is there a line are they still doing it you would think not because it seems unnecessary in the future even Chakotay talked about it at one time like Chakotay said like i'm a vegetarian which also begs the question of why does it matter if you're a vegetarian if meat is synthetic you're not hurting anyone and everything like that so so then is technically everybody a vegetarian in the future if you're eating replicated food and also, maybe him saying that he's a vegetarian means that he can have access to real meat and chooses not to to use it. So maybe even by the 24th century, even with replicated food, some people are like, nope, I want my burger and I want it real. <laughs> you know, speaking as a vegetarian, that would not completely surprise me, although it does make me a little sad. Because I want the future to be a hopeful place and I don't want animals to be harmed just for the sake of food. It seems unnecessary. Did I know that you were a vegetarian? You should know that. I had to have known, right? And my brain just wiped it. You have to have known. How many years have we been doing this? Seven, I think, right? (laughs) I mean, if it's not come out now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I've been a vegetarian for a long time, pretty much since 1996. Well, that was before we met, so. (laughs) Since I was 15 years old, so long time. The majority of my life. All right. So anyway, folks, if you have any more insight, like if you've read anything more like in the novels, in the comic books, or maybe we're missing a few references throughout the show, let us know by going to thenerdparty.com. There you can find all of our back episodes as well as all of our other shows. But most importantly, you can go to thenerdparty.com slash contact, select punch it from the drop down menu and fill out the form and it'll send us an email. So what other things do we know about Miles O'Brien? We know that he enlisted Insta Starfleet at 17 years old, right? Didn't go to the Academy. Didn't go to the Academy. This is a big deal. This is a big deal within a militaristic society about how you're not an officer. You're not going to have high rank. It'll be easy for people to outrank you. Even though like you have like 20 years experience, you have like an officer who who's been there a couple of years, but he's in the officer program or something like that. Boom, he outranks you. Right. You're forever a lieutenant. Yeah, and I think that made they made reference to that like when Nog went through the academy and uh-huh. Miles O'Brien kind of joked about how it's like, yeah, Nog's going to be my superior real soon. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, that's how it works. And we we another thing we know is that his dad was not entirely happy about his choice to enlist in Starfleet because he wanted his son to pursue a musical career. Which is something very interesting because something that you would mainly only hear in the 24th century because yeah right totally reversed he's like no i want to go into starfleet you know like i want to be an engineer and they're like no being a musician is much more reliable (laughs) (laughs) well it's certainly i would say a safer path in life and maybe you can get pretty steady work if you're a good musician in the future and that lends itself to some story ideas right there like we know a little bit about Miles and his uh, home life a little bit, but like what kind of person was his dad? What kind of person was his mom? What sort of interest did they have? Why were they initially opposed to him going to Starfleet? Mm -hmm. So there's some potential right there. Yeah, absolutely. And it's always fascinating because, you know, like living in a society that doesn't have any currency that we know of, like traditional currency that we know of, Uh and it's not a capitalistic society. 
it is interesting because I'm sure that there is going to be a boom of the arts of people who kind of have that. It's a legit option where it's just like, I want to be a musician. No, I don't want to be a rock star. I don't want to be a famous person. I want to be a musician. And you'll able to do that without having to wait tables on the side, you know, something like that. Right, exactly. You can pursue your craft full time and do what you actually want. That's why a lot of people nowadays are arguing for universal basic income. And that's a discussion for another time. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, well, that, that's the thing, though, is like in the future, your basic needs are taken care of so that you can pursue what you really love. And then the theory is overall, everybody's more enriched and healthier because of it. And in Star Trek, we see that in practice. Now, on top of that, we do know that he had two brothers and his mother passed away like his mother's no longer alive when we see him in the next generation. And with that, it's just, I feel like with all of that put together, like knowing he has siblings, a mother that passed away, because we know so little about his mother, I feel like you're right. Like if we wanted to write a story, the story would be in him enlisting in Starfleet and not becoming a musician. And also, why did he enlist? You know, like yeah. why didn't he go to the academy? He's obviously smart enough. Totally. Why did he make that choice? That There's a lot of potential there. And I feel like there was one, okay, I can't remember the drumhead. The episode, The Drumhead, where we had the individual who said that like his paternal grandfather was Vulcan and they were actually Romulan, and he was an enlisted man. Like, And Picard actually sat him down and talked to him, and he's like, why didn't you go to the academy? He's like, well, I, I considered it, but I didn't want to wait four years. Four years was an eternity for, <laughs> to an 18-year-old. He's like, I was eager. Yeah. I wanted to get out into the stars. Maybe that's what Miles was doing too, or maybe, I don't know, it was a faster way to get away from his dad. I don't know. Maybe, or yeah, maybe Miles just really wanted to sink his teeth into the action right away, and that was the quickest and best route to do so. And as a 17-year-old, that probably just sounds like the perfect thing to do. Now, we haven't even gotten to any of his actual appearances on Star Trek yet, no. so like this is how much we know about him. And I feel like there's a lot of episodes where he talks about himself, he talks about his background. We don't see a lot of it. But it comes up in casual conversation with Keiko or Julian or even Picard. Mm -hmm. Now, he's 17. This is something that I always thought was interesting because we got a lot of his backstory in The Wounded, I would say, right? Uh, yeah, I'd say there's some good stuff there, yeah. It's pretty O'Brien-focused. And when we first see him encounter at Farpoint, he's flying the ship. And then right. sometimes we see him on tactical. So we're like, okay, well, he flies the ship and sometimes he's insecurity and then we see him as a in the transporter room so from a viewer perspective like while this was happening i was kind of like oh he's kind of just the everyman like the writers don't know where to put him like they, they have a great actor but they don't know what to do with him exactly yeah <laughs> and so i was just like oh so it doesn't really and like his rank changes at times it goes forward it goes back he actually has a legit rank then it changes to a petty officer then it changes to an you know it's it's it goes all over the place. Oh, yeah. Well, and of course, behind the scenes, that is exactly what happened is they really loved Cole Meany, and he was just more or less a glorified extra on the mm -hmm. pilot of TNG. But that's... And then, of course, it becomes this thing where he becomes a side character. Then he becomes a main character. And you know what's interesting about Miles is I feel that for as much as we do know, there's a whole lot that we don't know. And I think it's all due to the fact that he had such longevity on the show, even though he wasn't a featured character most of that time. Not until he got onto really DS9. And then we really started digging into him. 
But you think about that. 1987, 30 plus years ago, mm-hmm. he had been a part of the Star Trek universe for several years. Yeah. And it's just amazing how this all can happen and how I'm sure that Cole Meany had no idea this is <laughs> this was going to be the trajectory of his career, at least his Star Trek <laughs> career. Oh, I highly doubt it. Yeah. I'm sure he thought that the pilot was just going to be some kind of throwaway part he did for he probably a fairly decent paycheck. And then he was going to move on and do something else. And then lo and behold, here we are. Now, on top of this, so since we're looking at it from a writing perspective, before we go a little bit further on, right off the bat, not a good job. From a writer's perspective, from a producer's perspective, his introduction, or at least his, not so much his introduction, but like how his character was handled right off the bat was not well thought out. They did not no. know what they had in Cole Meany. He was an extra player. He had some good lines. And then they started liking him more and more. And they just couldn't decide where to put him. Well, we can't keep him flying the ship because we have other people who are going to do that. We can't keep putting him on tactical because... We're going to put Worf there now that Denise Crosby's gone. Right. And they keep cycling through and they're just like, oh, well, you know, like they transport a lot. So we'll just put him there. Right. He becomes the transporter chief. And don't we know that in previous assignments prior to the Enterprise, he became pretty well known for being a great tactician? After the fact, like after he was in okay. as a after transporter chief for a while. And so that's part of why I, I'm criticizing the writing is that they're like, oh, again, we don't know what to do with him. We don't want to lose him. We have this great actor. So let's give him a backstory. But his backstory does not fit his present situation. No, it makes no sense because I would think that being the transporter chief is a complete step down from what he was doing prior so, like, from a character standpoint, absolutely it does not work. From the producer standpoint, they're just desperate to keep Cole Meany on set. I get it. <laughs> and on top of that, this is where maybe the punch it could come in, where why did he go from being described as an expert in starship combat and participated in 235 combat engagements, you wow. know, being decorated on 15 separate occasions... For bravery and everything like that. And also being starting off as a junior tactical officer to a senior tactical officer on the USS Rutledge. How does he go from all that down to oh, I'm I'm okay with being in a in a transporter room for most of the day? Yeah, that makes zero sense. So yeah, if we're filling in the gaps, there had to have been some sort of traumatic incident that made him take a step back and want something a little more comfortable. Now, I just had an idea. Maybe this ties back a little bit to his father. Maybe his father was a fairly simple man. You know, you work hard, you earn an honest living, you enjoy the pleasures of life in your downtime, but that to him was life. And then maybe after having several years now of excitement, maybe something Mm -hmm. really horrible happened to O'Brien. We do know that he has a past with Cardassians. I don't know if we want to tie that or not into all of this but maybe something made him say you know what i still want to serve in starfleet but maybe i can take a little more of a behind the scenes role for a while and calm down and just enjoy my life and stand on my own two feet a little bit without having to be constantly flung in the excitement of the action does that make any sense i think it absolutely makes sense because we could use the setlick three massacre as that event where maybe he never really got over it. Well, actually, we know he never got over the Setlick 3 True. massacre. Right. That kind of helped him <laughs> have certain attitudes toward Cardassians. 
Yeah, I think it's a it's a quote that um, Enterprise Extra on Twitter likes to say all the time, and I always get it wrong. He says, he's like, I don't hate you, Cardassian. I hate what I've become because of you. Ooh, so maybe all the while, maybe as transporter chief, he's trying to settle his own mind and figure out how do I deal with some of these uh, darker thoughts I've got going on. Maybe he's working with Counselor Troy. I think we could add, if we were going to pursue this later on, I think one thing that we could add is a little BS politics. Okay. Where he went to the Enterprise D, but maybe there was something, like maybe some rules were changed where maybe he didn't fully understand what was going on or something to that effect where it's just like, oh, well, the flagship is different from the Rutledge. Like, this is the Enterprise. You have to go through the Academy if you want to have a senior position on this ship or something like that. That makes a lot of sense considering how many overqualified people there would be vying for an assignment on the flagship. Yeah, you maybe go from being a big fish in a smaller pond to... If you want to be on the flagship, you're going to take any assignment you can get. I think that's something, and maybe that could kind of be built into some of the um, adversity that he's had to go through because he knows that he's more qualified than most everybody here, especially Uh on certain things, but he still doesn't get the respect because he didn't spend four years in in a building with books. Well, I think that's a relatable thing, like especially when you're starting a new job, you're eager to prove yourself and you think, hey... Give me enough time. I will earn your respect. I will show you what I can do. But maybe something as highly competitive as the Enterprise, it takes a lot longer than you think. So you're Mm -hmm. stuck being the transporter chief for a long time. And maybe to tie it back to what you were talking about, maybe he did know that, you know, ahead of time. And he's just like, okay, well, maybe I won't be expected to do all these things, you know, like have to be in tactical or have to fight and everything like that Uh so that I can actually give myself some peace and quiet while Uh, still advancing on the Federation flagship. Or what if he's just tired of fighting? Could be. Maybe he's got combat fatigue. She's like, you know what? I know I'm good at this, but that doesn't mean that's what I should be doing with my life. Just because you are good at something doesn't mean you have to do it. Now, one thing from a writing perspective, and also a performance perspective, one thing that I never really liked was his exit from the Enterprise. Okay. Let's talk about it. He has a conversation, and we can go back and forth between Next Generation and Deep Space Nine, but with this particular thing, it's in Deep Space Nine's opening episode, and he has a private moment with Picard in the transporter room. And Picard's, you know, Patrick Stewart is kind of acting, you know, a little nostalgic, saying like, I'm going to miss you. It's not going to be the same here without you. And the entire time, though, O'Brien was just kind of like, he was kind of like awkward looking and he he just wanted to get out of there. <laughs> yeah. And he was just like, he's like, ah, I was just, you know, like anybody can do this. It's, it's no big deal. And it's just a transporter room. You know, it's, I didn't really do too much. You know, it's just like, it was just, he was constantly downplaying it, but it wasn't in that like fake humility way. It was, this is awkward as hell. I want to get out of here. And I never really liked it. And I never really understood it because whenever O'Brien was talking with the leadership, whether it's Riker or Worf or Picard or anything like that. He was always very casual, very comfortable. And I remember him talking about like ships and bottles and everything like that, Uh you know, like with Picard very openly. It's just like, oh, yeah, it's great fun. You know, just everything like that. I I was just like, what happened to that O'Brien? Why is he so awkward here right now? And why did that direction happen? 
unless he's got some weird feelings about leaving the Enterprise. And he's just taking it out on Picard. That's all I can think of. Yeah, that's all I can think of, too, is I would love to write an episode about that transition. How was he approached to come over to Deep Space Nine? Uh Uh-huh. Who talked to him? Whose idea was it? Was it his idea? Did someone approach him? Did Picard initially try to fight it? And maybe that's why it's weird. I don't know. It's just from a viewer perspective, it's easy to forget all of his back qualifications. And so if you purely only know him as the transporter chief and then all of a sudden, boom, he's basically the Scotty and Geordi equivalent over on Deep Space Nine. You're like, where the hell is this coming from? (laughs) Right, right. Also, it's a massive life change. I mean, he has a family at this point. Mm -hmm. They've been pretty settled and steady on the Enterprise for some time now. And then you're going to a space station out on the frontier where things are not exactly peaceful. There's a lot of tension. There's a lot of politicking going on. It might not be the safest of situations. And yet you're going, maybe he didn't have any choice, though. What if, say, Admiral Necheyev reassigned him and said, we're putting you here. Yeah. Your time on the Enterprise is done. You've served well, but it's time. We want to move you around in some fashion. We Maybe she's framing it even in the way of saying, look, we want you to further your career, even if you're not, or even if you are an enlisted officer, this is your chance to be as close to, or a, to be a member of the senior staff. Because you'll never get it on the Enterprise. You're yeah. not ever going to get it on any other ship. Here's your chance. Do you want to take it? That's such a great idea that like the rules are different on a on a station. You have the opportunity to flourish, maybe even yeah, absolutely. I, I love that idea. I love that idea. So then here's the further question of why did O'Brien take it? Say he wasn't forced, it was proposed to him. Mm-hmm. What is his motivation? I mean, does he like being or does he like the idea of possibly being just one of a crew of misfits? trying to make it out there? Does he want that sense of adventure again that maybe is what motivated him to enlist in Starfleet in the first place? Now that he's had that downtime, maybe family life has gotten a little too steady for him. Maybe he needs a little peak of excitement here and again. Maybe this is it. Or is it just purely strictly a career move? My instinct is telling me that it's a career move, but at the same time, I feel like I can see this conversation with Keiko where he says, I overcorrected. When I went to the transporter room, I was too far from what I've been doing, and I've done that too long. I need to move on to something bigger and better. I know I can do this, and it'll be rough at first, but maybe it'll be more stable for the family. We won't be going from system to system to system. We'll stay in one place. Ooh, yeah. I mean, base station can't really go that far. And I imagine he also, even though this didn't exactly happen, maybe he presents it to Keiko as, maybe there's some better opportunities for you too. Right, right. I mean, if I were in that situation, that's what I would say, even if I didn't fully know it was true. (laughs) Because, I mean, how much did they honestly know about Deep Space Nine before they got there? I imagine it wasn't a whole lot. Yeah, I'm sure that they only probably knew the bare bare bones. Like, well, I mean, like he would have to know as much as he possibly could about the station, because if he was going to be running it from a technical standpoint and working on a Cardassian station with Cardassian technology... Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, bare bones basics. That's the knowledge they have is they're basically taking over the station from the Cardassians, but they don't really know what it's going to become. Right. Right. So there is something in that. So, all right. It goes without saying. I mean, there's no argument here that 
O'Brien is a better character and better written on Deep Space Nine than he is on The Next Generation. Oh, by far and away, and not just because he got more airtime. Right. It's just, I mean, you know, Ronald D. Moore, he even admitted that when they had Colmini, that he was just a day player. We didn't put any thought into his character. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Easiest paycheck ever. And so by the time he gets to Deep Space Nine, we know exactly who he is, uh, you know, what he can do, maybe not exactly what he can do, but it allows us to give focus to him. No, no longer retconning and no longer like changing anything. Just like, this is Miles O'Brien. This is what he does. And this is who you're going to love for the next seven years. And even on top of that, though, like there's a whole section on Memory Alpha called Problematic Rank History devoted <laughs> to O'Brien. I'm not surprised. It's absolutely insane. And it looks like they made him a quote-unquote non-com, an enlisted man, in the episode Family. Okay, back in TNG days. That's when they made him a chief petty officer. But even after that episode aired, you still saw him in the wrong pips sometimes. And like people would address him as a lieutenant. Or, you know, it's just, yeah, there are still <sighs> problems. Star Trek is by no means perfect in its continuity. <laughs> oh, and especially when it comes to rank, like we've talked many times on Voyager, they screwed up Tuvok, they screwed up Chakotay a little bit. This is not a new issue. No. Behind the scenes, I don't know if you know a whole lot about this. I'm wondering, I mean, they had to have known at this point what a treasure they had in the talent of Cole Meany. Obviously, they wanted to give him more. Was he chomping at the bit was he potentially threatening to leave? Or was this just the opportunity with the creation of DS9 to say, hey, we can make your character a main character now. Are you in or not? Well, here's what Michael Piller said about bringing Colmini over to Deep Space Nine. Okay, tell me. We've always thought he was a terrific performer, and now we're giving him something much more interesting to do as a leading character on the new show. He's pulling hair out from one minute to the next because everything is breaking down. He can't get the replicators to make a good cup of coffee. His wife, Keiko, is terribly unhappy about having been taken off the Enterprise and over to this dreadful station. So he finds himself in an uncomfortable position. That doesn't really give the reason why they moved him over. No, not at all. And in fact, it makes it sound like a really bad career move. Yeah, it does. Like, And also, I forgot that Keiko was unhappy. Of course, Keiko's always unhappy. But um, <laughs> That's just who she is. But if you think about it, she had a really good job on the Enterprise. So, yeah, I on mean, the Federation flagship. For her, it's a big sacrifice. It really is. It's interesting. I'd love to see that conversation. I'd love to see the, the grating, yelly voice that Keiko has. <laughs> <laughs> you want more nagging Keiko O'Brien? <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I think that's you know right now on twitter there's that hashtag of the unpopular opinion and star trek thing that's going around i think that is an unpopular star trek opinion right there <laughs> i want more keiko o'brien whining more whiny o'brien more whiny <laughs> keiko o'brien no thanks but i do want them to have a good conversation now here is another quote from uh, ira bear and then it moves on to robert hewitt wolf because this is something that we need to talk about from a writer's perspective let's do it as Star Trek fans, we all know the crazy crap that they put O'Brien through in Deep Space Nine. He got tortured how many times? It was a running joke with a semi-annual O'Brien must suffer. So according That's to Ira Bear, he says, Every year in one or two shows, we try to make his life miserable because you empathize with him. 
And then Robert Hewitt Wolf explains, if O'Brien went through something torturous and horrible, the audience was going to feel that in a way they wouldn't feel with any of the other characters. Because all the other characters were sort of, I wouldn't say larger than life, but nobler than life. But O'Brien was just a guy trying to live his life. If so, if you tortured him, that was the story. Given that motivation, I completely see why they constantly made O'Brien the whipping boy, because he is the everyman. He's the most relatable. They're absolutely right Mm. about that. But poor O'Brien. The things they did (laughs) at his expense. And shameless self-promotion here, I actually wrote a story about this and about him dealing with his PTSD from all the crap that they put him through. And you actually see that through the lens of other characters. You see that through the lens of Julian Bashir as well as a female Jim Hadar, which you can find on this show. You ought to put that on the show notes too. Yes, I will put that in the show notes. So like what you can do is you can go to the nerdparty.com slash punch it. This episode, the latest episode 74, will have it in the show notes. So you can click directly to it. It's called The Last Will Be First. And what was it, a couple of years ago you wrote that? I think it was about two years ago. And then we were nominated for an award for it last year. That's right. Because we, we debuted it on, a, I did a, an audio version with my wife and we debuted it on Punch It. and got yeah. a lot of attention. Yeah, it was very cool. All right. So as far as Miles O'Brien goes, is there anywhere else we want to explore? Do we want to go into the future? I think we need to talk about the relationships real quick. Yeah, actually, you're right. We haven't really discussed a whole lot with Julian or oh, we've talked a little bit about Keiko. We could maybe do more. We talked a little bit about Keiko, uh, but I would like to focus a little bit more on Julian, which is really funny that I just said that out loud because I'm like, yeah, the wife, whatever, blah, 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 blah. But let's talk about his friend. But isn't that what really happened on the show? And even O'Brien said as much. He's like, I love my wife, but I think I love you more, (laughs) bro. No, it was something like like and love, right? It was, I love my wife, but I like you more. Or did you just say that? No, no, you're a little more accurate. Yes. Okay. Now, okay, so here's something. I'm going to read this section. Okay, do it. This is a section on memory alpha that I think everybody should hear. The relationship built on Deep Space Nine between O'Brien and Bashir was very important to all the writers as well as both actors. According to Ronald D. Moore, after the scene where they sing British Patriot Hymn Jerusalem together, all of the staff writers wanted to write scenes involving their friendship. Alexander Mm -hmm. Siddig says, It's been said by even the producers that O'Brien and Bashir are the only real friendship that's ever happened on Star Trek. These two really are friends. It's not like some kind of odd couple scenario like Spock and Kirk. It's a real friendship. These people talk about inane things. And I think that's been really refreshing. And then Hewitt Wolf elaborates and says, It was just great. There was just great chemistry between the two actors, great chemistry between the two characters. It was brilliant of Michael and Rick to create these two characters as foils for each other. And to then see this relationship develop over the years till they're best friends, till Miles actually likes Bashir kind of almost better than his wife some days, which is a very real, I mean, there's days that everybody, you know, it's, it's easier to be friends with a friend than with your wife some days. And then Ira Bear goes on even further and cites, cites it as his favorite relationship in Star Trek. The relationship between Bashir and O'Brien is the best relationship, best friendship in the history of the franchise. Spock and Kirk were still about the captain and his number one. This is a friendship with two equals, two guys. It's a wonderful thing to watch how this relationship has grown. I completely agree. All of that. Spot on. That's why it worked so well. That's why it was so much fun to watch it. And in terms of relatability, absolutely relatable. We all want a friend like that if we don't have one. 
yeah, we do. We want that person that we can talk about BS with that that doesn't matter. And and we need yeah. like we all need that release. And get drunk and sing. Yeah, we all need that friend. Now, like you and I, we were lucky enough to marry our best friends, but sometimes you need to go outside of the relationship, of the marriage, and have that friendship with somebody else. It's just how the world works, you know? It's just how humans exist. Dare I say, we're very lucky that we got to marry our best friends. Not everybody is as lucky. I don't have any statistics that back this up, but I think a lot of times, I mean, your spouse, you should definitely have a good relationship with your spouse. Not necessarily your best friend all the time, though. I mean, relationships come in all sorts of shapes and sizes, and they're related to very differently Miles has a very different relationship with his spouse than we do with our spouses, Mm -hmm. but that's why he needed Julian. Right, right. And I love that even when they were friends, even while they were friends, they would still annoy each other sometimes. And It's so true. That's what happens. Because it's a real thing. And also on top of that, there were times when they were very heated, where they got angry with each other. Even professionally, they would get angry with each other. Yeah, because not only were they friends, but they also worked together somewhat. And sometimes that happens. Sometimes you get in the way. And basically, he's living in the same place as his friend. He's working with his friend, and he still has to be his friend. So it's it's a really weird situation. A little bit, yeah. But again, very relatable because not everything is always going to be hunky-dory with your very best friend. If you really have that solid of a friendship, you're going to overcome things. You're going to grow together rather than grow apart. But you're still going to annoy each other, especially the more time you spend together. You're going to get tired of each other. That's just human nature. All right. Well, I think that does it for our uh, deep character analysis and writing perspective on Miles Edward O'Brien. If you guys have anything else that you want to add or have any questions for us, or if you know anything that we didn't discuss that you think was pertinent to the conversation, please talk to us. Let us know. Send us a private email. You can uh, go to thenerdparty.com slash contacts, like punch it from the drop-down menu, fill out the form. You can also find us personally on Twitter. You can find me at the Insane Robin. You can find me at Oh the Profanity. And you can find the show at Join Nerd Party, as well as on Facebook and Instagram. Just search The Nerd Party. You'll find it. And uh, next week, we're going to fly by the seat of our pants because we have no idea what we're going to be doing, but we know (laughs) that we're going to punch it. Ready for warp, sir. Let's punch it. Join the revolution. Join the Nerd Party.